0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playtesting and GM
0: skill. Hasani Saba. Mutant City, the Yellow King. And the alien Big Cats. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything.
1: Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages.
0: But you know young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean
1: perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every
0: magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with
1: foes, like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons.
0: They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super
1: simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's.
0: And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and
1: love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A soul- play graphic novel adventure within
1: moments of opening it kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game
0: run magical kitties save the day for kids as young as six years old
1: and for everyone else who loves kitties
0: a great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM
1: if you've been looking for a way to introduce your
0: friends and family to role-playing games magical kitties save the day is the perfect game to do it do you mean perfect I also do not Pick up your copy at atlas games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But, well, this is weird, Robin. The dice, some of them, just seem to sit on the table like inert lumps. Others of them are rattling in lovely fashion. The miniatures, some of them are painted and evocative. Others, I think they're just thimble. They're just the pieces for the Monopoly set, Robin. Some of the Dorito. oh, that's the store brand Dorito. That's not a real Dorito. Yeah, but th- that thimble has 10 hit dice, Ken. It, it does. It's. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a thimble. I'm just saying. Anyways, and uh Peter Frampton is either coming alive or simply playing his greatest hits part three. Robin, it's as though the Gaming Hut changes its nature depending on who presents it to us as we kick off this all-request episode with just such a request from beloved Patreon backer Tom Abella. He asks, In discussing handling cost, Robin referred to the importance of trusting playtest feedback to best understand whether the required lift for playing rules was worth it at the table. However, it occurred to me... That a good GM can make all sorts of things very exciting, even boring old sword fights, and a bad one can make exciting things, like computer hacking, seem dull. How do you correct (laughs) for the skill level that the GM can have on your playtest, and I assume, to some extent, on your game even, right?
0: Right. So, the first thing is that you are... The very nature of someone deciding to playtest a game means they are in the the highest, most bought-in upper echelons of gamertude, and, you know, they're your superfan. So people don't just casually, you know, stumble in off the street and ask for a playtest kit. So chances are you know that you're dealing with super keeners and you do have to sort of factor that into account.
1: So the theory is that like every social science experiment ever, this is unreplicable and unrepresentative.
0: Uh, Yes, but it's more fun than many social experiments. Much more fun. Except the ones where you get to zap people with electricity.
1: Or the marshmallow. You get that sweet marshmallow. That's good stuff.
0: However, you can't kind of tell from reading people's reports how dedicated they are to the playtest experience as you want them to be. Uh, Sometimes you'll get a report saying, well, we didn't like these rules, so we did this. (laughs) Which is like, well, you could have stopped writing there. So basically, you know that your playtesters are are, uh, probably giving you, you know, they're the top end. They're the people you'd be lucky to have running games for you at, at a convention. And you have to know that. So if you've got something that's a bit of a lift and everybody says, Oh, it was a bit of a lift, you know, it's probably a double lift for, uh, <laughs> you know, a Josephine average GM. On the other hand, you know, if everybody goes, oh, this was perfect, this didn't have any problems at all, this was great, that, uh, you know, you're comparing it to other playtest reports, basically. However, often the GMs who are the most exciting and fun are ignoring a lot of the rules and mm-hmm. the ones even if they're running from them for you at a convention, they're making it uh, a system sing by skipping whole bunches of it. And you want to make sure they're not doing that. And you have to be pretty you know confident that they're not uh, doing that. But ultimately you just have to know what strata they are and, uh, and uh, adjust for that. I mean, the,
1: part of it is that in theory, as I alluded to, I guess at the, at the lead in, a good GM is going to be able to distort any response that you get and likewise a very bad GM. And so what you have to write for, design for, and then read playtest for is the sort of notion of the average GM. Um uh, the, the great uh, writer S. John Ross used to say it is impossible to make a set of rules foolproof because fools are too stupid to read them. <laughs> Similarly, I think it is impossible to make a set of rules that is bad GM proof. Uh, And you just have to assume that, you know, it's like a fire extinguisher. If they're not going to pull the little tab, they're not going to stop a fire with it. You just have to assume that someone approaching this technique is interested in using it. And the playtest responses that you get are more, in my experience, about here is a thing that we wanted to do but we didn't know how, or we, or as in some cases, so we just did this other thing that makes no sense. Um, or every now and again, you know, blind squirrel, etc. You did something that's like, actually, that's a really good idea. And maybe here's how to do it in a way that will be consonant with the rest of the rules. But that's the sort of feedback that I see a really good GM providing is that the players are into it. They're running along. Something comes up that isn't in the rule set. It's not so much, I had a bad rule that was getting in the way. It's like, I didn't build it out yet to support the kind of exalted play that a really good GM can draw out of players. And so when I'm reading playtest feedback, I keep an eye out for that kind of response, even more so than for the, well, those psychic rules seemed hard, so no one in our group made a psychic or whatever. And then it's, you know, at, at some level you have to judge is this rule still capable of being interacted with by the imaginary least bad GM that lives in my head? Or is it genuinely, oh, look, no one played a psychic and the game is called psychic something or other. So maybe I should unscrew those psychic rules.
0: Right. And of course, that's why you uh, ideally have a, many playtesters, mm-hmm. not just relying on feedback from one person, as far as specifically the issue of handling costs and playtesting or handling costs. Another thing that you have to factor in, in the other direction, is that working from a playtest kit in and of itself has a huge handling cost.
1: Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's not laid out. It, there's no index. You can't paginate it. Sometimes you can't even search it.
0: Yes. And so all of those things that in a way that playtesters are facing the most challenging handling cost version of your game that anyone will ever have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so uh, once they, you know, it's easier to look up rules because there's a drawing of a sword near the weapons rules. And uh, there's, as you suggest, an index. or um, op- Often I will send things in with a table of contents because you can auto-generate a table of contents pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But e- even so, or, or if there's components that people have to deal with and they don't, you don't have the components yet and there's uh, inevitably going to be stuff missing from the manuscript so um the actual answer i think really is that the playtesters will always overestimate the handling cost of something in the long run once uh, you know people finally have the real game in their hand and you know possibly accessories and they've you know had time to prep and know what they're doing but again that's just something that you have to uh you know factor in by having a large number of people you can also kind of tell from people's responses who you know, you have to, when people are struggling with the rules, again, they may not be reporting exactly what the problem is. So they may have a handling class problem, but not describe it as such. And you have to sort a, a drill down uh, into that. And so it is essentially a matter of interpretation. But again, I would underline what I usually say about playtesting, which is that people mostly think that it's kind of a focus group, but really what you're hoping for is just a we had trouble with this and we didn't understand this and this went great. And again, it's about having a, a large number of people so that if everybody finds something cumbersome, it's cumbersome. And if uh, nobody complains, uh, somebody later will complain, but uh, your high level play testers didn't. And I guess the other final thing is, you know, if you have a question in your mind, is this handling cost worth it? And you're still worried, find ways to simplify it, see what you can do or, uh, you know, because I think what you're really looking for is not the answer to the question, was this hard to handle, but rather, how much fun did you have once you handled it? So, again, to return to the shock and injury cards in the Yellow King, people did observe that it had a handling cost to it and how they dealt with that. But they were also very enthusiastic about it. And that's really what you're looking for is the other half of the equation, not how hard was it to use, because that will resolve itself later to some extent. but did you really enjoy it enough to justify how hard it was to use?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, in general, you want people to enjoy your game, uh, I I think. And looking for those instances of joy in the playtest is, I think, as important as looking for areas where the rules sort of fall apart or don't do. what I mean, that's important. You've got to shore those up. Absolutely. But you also need to reinforce the moments where you know, if two different playtest groups came back and said, man, we thought that those chase rules were a bo- were the bomb. Those were great. Then second, look at those chase rules and see if there's a way to move them closer to core activity or to provide more emphasis on or support for them, because you're also looking for the unexpected moments where players really engaged with the material. Um, The, the playtest of Bookhounds of London, I did not initially have a particularly sophisticated mechanic for building the bookshop. And about a third of the playtest came back and said, well, uh when we started building our bookshop, we did this stuff and they all did different things, but they were all saying there wasn't enough fun here yet. So we, you know, we knew this would be fun. So we brought our own fun. Yeah. Or in some cases they didn't know they brought their own fun. They were like, well, this was a really fun thing because we did such and so from trail. And it's like, oh, this is not really this. You, you did that. You, you, you sort of, you know grokked that those two things belong together. So that worked out really well because they were looking for uh, the fun and then finding it. And then it's your job to sort of bring it out of the raw or of the presentation, the, the initial playtest version into a more refined, shinier version that everyone can find the fun in.
0: Right. And again, to underline, really, there's no such thing in playtesting as a too good GM because those are the people who are going to tell other people about your game online they're going to be a stalwart of your online community if you have one, and uh, if you're extra lucky, they're going to come to conventions and run games for you. So uh, there's that's the other aspect of playtesting is it's also an exercise in community building, and uh, and you really want you know you, you you cross your fingers and hope that every GM is too good is way better than the average gms that play other average games unlike your own and once someone
1: has had the temerity to play a game unlike your own then i suppose the best thing that we can do is offer them one of the fine gaming products available in our advertisements and then move to another hut
0: British intelligence, you just keep making terrible mistakes.
1: In 1893, a spymaster from British Naval Intelligence tried to recruit the ultimate asset, Dracula. What happened? Biting! Oh, so much biting. But then they terminated him. Except they didn't. When the Cold War came along, what did MI6 do? Uh, They recruited Dracula. What happened? More biting! Oh,
0: so much more biting. And then, when the Global War on Terror arrived? Recruitment, Dracula... Biting? Well, the British government has surely run out of mistakes, then. If that's so,
1: how do the spectacular Knights Black Agents campaign that documents it all wind up in the bundle of holding again?
0: You don't mean the Dracula dossier. Unthinkably, yes. Dracula dossier by you, which is to say Kenneth Height. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan? Alas, yes.
1: For a terrifyingly low 1995, you get the core Knight's Black Agents rulebook,
0: plus Dracula Unredacted, and
1: the Edom Field Manual.
0: But Dracula Unredacted is the ultimate handout. Bram Stoker's Dracula with all the tradecraft secrets put back in.
1: Not only that, but if you match the threshold price, the ever-mysterious price that just keeps ticking up, you get the entire Dracula Dossier line.
0: The Dracula Dossier Director's
1: Handbook and deck. The Edom Files. The Hawkins Papers. The Thrill of Dracula. The Van Helsing Letter. If you haven't got it, get it at the Bundle of Holding before Monday, November 2nd. And if you have got it, tell your friends to get it. At BundleofHolding.com presents Dracula Dossier 2020. So, so much biting.
0: It's time once more to uh, enter that most covert of huts, but this time around, we're not submitting to a a retinal scan. We are not having a background check, but rather we're seeing a a distant mountain, and we're perhaps parting a curtain or two as we uh, sneak uh, back into history to the uh, 11th century. Uh, because estimable uh, patron backer Elias Helfer wants the scoop on Hassan E. Saba. And uh, I think, uh, you know, as runners of espionage networks go, is there an earlier, more accomplished runner of an espionage network?
1: I mean, I think that in terms of people we have any of the details of their operations. I am not super familiar with the uh, history of, of ancient Chinese espionage. I assume that you know, someone had it, and someone wrote about it, and whether or not that survives, um I'm not sure, but in that great era where Sun Tzu is putting down the art of war, you know, easily a third of the art of war is the art of not getting into a war in the first place. So I assume espionage shows up. But in terms of specific spy masters, Hassan Isaba may be the best earliest. We have names in some cases, but we don't have a lot of uh, operational details. and we don't even have a lot of operational details. For Hassani Saba, most of the things that were written about him were written 200 years after his time on this earth. So we are putting together the clues just like we would for real spy masters in the modern day.
0: Well then, uh, put those clues together and uh, let us uh, start the narrative. All right. Hassani Saba is
1: born in Qum in Persia. He is part of a Shia family and one assumes a fairly prominent one because he goes to school and studies theology and uh, simultaneously studies all of the arts and sciences. Everyone's very sure that he studied not just calligraphy and poetry, but also astronomy, algebra, you know, the, the higher uh, sciences and learning. So his family, one assumes, was probably fairly well off. They were 12 Shia, and we are not necessarily going to get into the weeds on the various different kinds of Shia Islam. But at some point, Hassan converts from Twelver Shia, which means that you descend from the 12th Imam spiritually, to Ismaili Shia, the difference being, and this is the difference generally in most Shia movements, which specific Imam you split off from conventional Shia in uh, venerating. And so the Ismailis are named because of, they believe that Ismail uh, became the imam in 765, despite technically having been dead for a decade, which is, I think, you begin to get to the notion of the degree to which Ismailism exalts a sort of hidden understanding of the world over and above a sort of uh, more conventional uh, Shia understanding of the world. And so this is, I think, where you begin very dimly from a distance to sense the kind of presence that ismaili Shiism was in the Seljuk Sultanate, because it believed, on the one hand, in all of the kinds of education that Hassan had, science, math, learning, but on the other hand, believed that all of that was a tool to be used for a mystical or hidden end, and that made it very dangerous to the Seljuks, who, being Turkish invaders and occupiers, certainly did not want people starting to wonder what was behind, say, power structures. So they didn't like it. Also, there was a geopolitical rivalry against the Fatimid Caliphate, which was a rival caliphate. The Seljuks ran the Abbasid Caliphate, who and the Abbasid Caliph sat there in Baghdad and did what they told him to. But in Cairo, they had a different caliphate, which was a Ismailite Caliphate in Cairo, run by uh, the dynasty descended all the way back from Fatima, which is why why they're called the Fatimids. So anyway, we have a a Cold War sort of a situation every now and again. The Seljuks and the Fatimids will throw down in Syria, but by and large, they try to stay relatively neutral about stuff. But, once you've got a young urgent Ismaili missionary, or uh, what we would call an agent of influence now, going around indoctrinating people in the hills, uh, that guy needs to be kicked out of your caliphate. So he was either banished to Cairo. Malcontents
0: in the hills have ended more regimes uh, than uh, you can shake a stick at.
1: Exactly. That's why you shake a stick attached to a sword blade at them if you can. Um, So anyway, he is either banished to Cairo by the Seljuks or summoned to Cairo by the Fatimids. Either way, he disappears from Iran in 1076, or from Persia, as it was then, in 1076. We don't quite know what he was doing, but they're sort of Traces that are left in the record imply that he went to uh, the Christian kingdom of Armenia for a while and started uh, burrowing in with enemies of the Seljuks that way came down through Syria, which was a sort of flashpoint between uh, the Fatimids and the Seljuks Uh, was in Damascus at one point, which had sort of uh, a second city resentment of Baghdad. So he's basically looking for weak points of uh, the Seljuks, and then he gets to Cairo. He spends about three years in Cairo. If this were, again, the Cold War, we would know that a guy who went back to Moscow was getting indoctrinated and getting trained in all of the cool spy stuff that they had there. One assumes the same sort of thing is happening in uh, Cairo. The, the Fatimids have established something called the House of Wisdom, which is a instructional place to learn both Ismaili science and also Ismaili mysticism. Alchemy has got a big uh, foothold in in Cairo at this time. So he's probably picking up all kinds of cool hints about poison, as well as being further instructed and rising rapidly through the ranks of the Ismaili. You, you can't quite call it a clergy, but it's a uh order of experts, both in the faith and in using the faith against the enemies of the faith. So he rises up through the ranks of this. He's sent back into Persia to undermine the Seljuks there. He is, you know, immediately declared a enemy of the of the Sultanate by uh, the vizier Mizam al Mulk, who sends a lot of soldiers to chase him around in the mountains. He basically gets chased farther and farther up into the mountains until he discovers uh, the castle of Alamut in 1088, and he realizes this is a great castle. If I could run it. I could basically be invulnerable to these jerk Seljuks. So what he does is he sets about converting everyone in the valley around Alamut to Ismailism. And once he's got them, he converts their landlords to Ismailism. So, so,
0: so what is the, the appeal of Ismailism that allows him to uh, convert people? Or is it his appeal or do we know?
1: I I feel like in some cases, it is going to be his appeal. Hassan was obviously a very charismatic guy, and I don't think that there's any question that he had those, you know, uh, Bonaparte eyes uh, and the ability to, you know, get people to do things. I, I think he makes that amply clear later on in his career. Part of it is that, in general, if you are offering both a practical application of knowledge to the world and a hidden or mystical reason that the world is the way that it is. That's an advantage. So he's offering a a more exciting version of the boring belief that they already had. In some cases, they're hill folk who might have only had sort of a vague notion of Islam anyway. They know they're supposed to uh, reverence educated people, but he might have been the first person in some of these villages who had ever read the Quran. And he shows up and he knows the Quran, and that itself is just amazing. And he just is saying, oh, I'm converting you to... Islam, and of course, it's Ismaili Shia, but he doesn't have to unconvert them from some other version, or if he does, it's sort of a diffuse understanding of Islam, and maybe one guy in the village has made the Hajj, but by and large, these are mountain folk. They're not really tied up in the great theological disputes and whatnot going on in the cities, so when someone shows up from the big city, the biggest of cities, uh, Cairo, and is like, here's the wisdom from Cairo. It's, you know, you showed up on the American plains in 1870 and you said, this is what I brought back from New York or Chicago. You get an audience, right?
0: Right. So he charismas and proselytizes his way to a castle. Exactly. And uh, he eventually shows
1: up at the castle, knocks on the door, walks in because the gatekeeper is an Ismailian, lets him in. He goes to the owner of the castle. The owner of the castle is, how did you get in? He says, God, let me in. The owner of the castle says, uh, kill him to his head guard. And his head guard says, oh, I can't kill him. He's he's a, a divine uh, figure. He's a qadi That would make me a bad Muslim. I'm not killing him. So the lord of the castle is now very concerned. And uh, Hassan says, look, I don't want there to be any unpleasantness. You tell me what you think is a fair price for your castle. And the <laughs> lord names some price. And he says, great. You go down to, you know, the richest man in the valley, and you tell him that I owe you this amount of money for this castle, and he'll take care of it. And the Lord says, well, that's ridiculous, sends a guy down. The guy says, oh, if Hassan needs it, great, writes him, a not a check, but I assume writes him a draft on his giant pile of gold, sends it back up, and the Lord says, all right, <laughs> I know what I'm beaten." Turns over the keys and walks out with his bag of gold and is never heard from again in history. That took him two years to subvert Alamut that way. But Once he uh, did that, he basically made that his home base. He established a big library of all of the texts that he needed, both theological and scientific, and began to attract students to learn from him. On his castle and these students he then indoctrinated in the same way that he had been indoctrinated in Cairo uh, to become a order of faithful uh, known as Fedayeen, which is what faithful just is. And these uh, people are so devoted to Hassan and to Ismaili uh, Shiism that they will famously risk death for it. They will walk into death for it because they know that Hassan has laid it out. This is what the faith demands. You know, if you don't want to do it, don't bother. But there's another guy who's going to take your place. So he's able to build his own, not just cell, but his own network at this point of fedayeen, And they are known as the Asasiyun, which means the men of principle. Asas means principle in Arabic. Uh, they are the Asasiyun. And uh, when word gets out, people are saying, you live in a castle in the mountains. You're not Asasiyun. You're Hashishi. Meaning you're the sort of, uh, rubes who come down out of the mountains stoned on hashish and uh, you don't account for anything. So this is where the first connection of hashish with Hassan's operation comes is from his Islamic enemies saying, you're, you're, you're not actually men of principle. You're just goofballs from the hills. We don't care about you. Eventually this becomes the myth. Uh That was encouraged both by fanboys of uh, of Hassan in the nineteen sixties and by enemies of Hassan's organization in the thirteen hundreds and it was the the myth was that he uh got people so stoned on hashish that they thought that they'd seen paradise and so when he said, "If you want to get back to paradise, you have to go die at my command and they'd say righto chief and and go do that
0: it is a really beguiling myth, so it's Easy to see why that would have caught on.
1: It's a really strong, good myth. And you get why people love it. (laughs) But uh, like many things that Marco Polo said, it turns out not to be true. (laughs) And because there is no zero evidence either from his own, you know, we have most of the uh, record of the library of Alamut. When the Mongols seized it, they wrote down everything that they found there. Magic garden full of hash, not on the list. Um, and again, the Mongols would have had no reason to lie or cover it up.
0: Right. And being perpetually stoned uh, is not a great way to uh, run or operate in a uh, a network.
1: No, one assumes that um, Hassan, being a devout Muslim, was more the opposite of perpetually stoned, that he stayed away from all mind-altering or mood-altering substances, not just alcohol. But we assume he wasn't chewing cot, even though his family was originally from Yemen uh we assume he wasn't messed up on hash because again very bad way to keep a castle organized and uh he's got plenty to 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 think about he is as i mentioned the result of the two most rigorous kinds of training you could have in the muslim near east in the 11th century <laughs> so why blunt that instrument i it's it, it's a great lore it's a beautiful story and we love it and it makes for great fiction and gaming and lots of other things but Hassan, no, he doesn't need drugs to get people to do what he says. He just has Hassan.
0: Yes, he he was the drug that right, other people yeah. were on. And he has
1: this one assumes specific methodology of training. And one of the things that he's training them in in Alamut is uh, the arts of basically stealthy combat. How do you kill a guy with a dagger in a hurry without them knowing, you know, how do you fight? And it's it's not quite ninjas. I don't think that there's super tech, you know, smoke bombs or whatever, although given that he knew alchemy, who can say? But basically, no, it's just, here's how you blend in. Here's how you keep your eyes open and get information. How do you send it back to Alamut or to another assassin compound because they begin to spread out over the mountainous uh, Mideast. And um, here is how you stab a guy and make sure that he's dead. And getaways are really between you and Allah. you've you've done your job when you killed the guy, that problem is solved. And so he sends the assassins out, and because they don't have notions of social position in their heads anymore, because they know that they've uh, got the truest possible calling, they don't mind pretending to be servants, they don't mind joining other people's armies and working their way up, because to them, they've already sworn allegiance to the true thing, which is Hassan, and his guys begin to move out, and uh, infiltrate courts. And of course, the first target of his assassinations is his old uh, foe, the Seljuk vizier Nizam al-Mulk, who gets it in 1092. Three guys show up at a banquet that he's at. They're just uh, hanging around. One assumes they're part of the entertainment or maybe serving drinks. And then they all pull knives, pop, 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 stabity, stab, stab, stab. Nizam goes down and that's the beginning. And that's how he announces to the universe, new game in town. Uh, this is the first of 50 assassinations, uh, that we know about that he conducted in his lifetime. He also began to train, as I mentioned, sort of franchisees who could take the operation and move it into Syria or elsewhere into other mountains in, uh, Persia. And, uh, back in Cairo, there is a coup against the, uh, the new caliph, who's a guy named Nizar and, uh. Hassan was buddies with Nizar back when he was in Cairo, so Nizar uh, sends his son out to Alamut. And so now, not only do you have the incredibly prestigious and cool Hassan, you've got the legitimate caliph of uh, the faithful is living up in Alamut, a little little kid, with Hassan, of course, as his uh, regent. So suddenly, the entire organization the Fatimids in Cairo had built up is basically beheaded and switched over to Hassan, so one assumes recruitment goes through the roof with that, and he does indeed be, you know, speed up the pace of assassinations, uh, he assassinates among other very famous people, uh, or very powerful people, they're not very famous now, except as a guy who got assassinated by Hassan, but like the emir of Homs in Syria, the uh, Qadis, the religious judges of both Isfahan and Nishapur in Persia, which assume one assumes blunts uh, military campaigns against his castle. The uh, Turkish uh, military governor of Mosul, a guy who fought against the assassins in Syria, he forced them to surrender a castle, was all braggy about it, and then he gets stabbed. Um, And then finally, the Fatimid vizier who had uh, mounted the coup against Nizar gets his in 1121 when he leaves Cairo and comes up uh, to Aleppo in Syria, foolishly very, very close to an assassin base. So... Hassan dies in 1124. He has already trained a successor who runs Alamut. He's got another successor who is running things in, uh, the, uh, anti-Lebanon mountains in Syria. Uh, that's probably, or one of the places where, uh, the Druzes in Lebanon being Ismailis, they get, uh, Uh, sheltered by uh, this guy. And one of those successors is the guy who is actually called the Old Man of the Mountain by a, a Christian chronicler named William of Tyre, who, again, notably, does not repeat the Magic Garden hashish story because William of Tyre, A, is a good historian, and B, has lived in Syria long enough to basically know what's the what about the assassins. And what he says is they really, really, really believe in this guy. They think that he is... Uh, the direct word of God. And so, of course, they die for him. You jerk crusaders are supposed to be dying for God all the time. Why is it surprising to you that our enemies also have guys like that? And uh, it's William of Tyre, you know, gives you the straight skinny on the assassins. But, of course, since it isn't cool and full of perfumed gardens and whatnot, it uh, doesn't make the headlines. But he does come up with the cool name, Old Man of the Mountain, which was probably never said about Hassan but was absolutely said about at least two of his successors. So we can, if you'd like back uh, project it because he was an old man. He did live on a mountain. I think that's fair.
0: And so what sort of, uh, length of, uh, what, what effect did he wind up having and what, uh, kind of, uh, how long did his power base last? If it lasted,
1: I mean, his power base, uh, lasted until, as I alluded, the Mongols took it out in about 1290. And, uh, they they, well, they make it until the
0: Mongols show up is a pretty good run.
1: It it is a good run. Uh the Mongols were from out of town. They didn't care if you were Muslim. Some of them were Muslim, some of them weren't. What they cared about is are you paying taxes and did you surrender your mountain to us? Uh when they show up, they don't have a bunch of assassins in their camp. Also they're the Mongols. A little thing like losing a couple of generals is not going to dissuade them. And they basically just siege out his mountain and destroy it. And as I mentioned, inventory, all the stuff that they take down off of Alamut. So it's during that basically century and a half, uh, between 1092 and the, and the Mongols that they make their big influence. And their biggest influence is not to advance necessarily the cause of Cairo, which again, they gave up on after the coup, or even advance the cause of the assassins owning cool castles. It was the cause of screwing over their enemies. (laughs) It was a lot of last tags. And the result, you can either say, was nothing. It was just a bunch of people died early. Or you can say the result was to add to the chaos of the Muslim states in the uh, 12th century at a time when they maybe needed to be focusing on the fact that a bunch of crusaders had shown up and were knocking them all over the field uh, in the first crusade. And uh, so there is all kinds of romantic stories about the assassins you know going after richard the lionhearted that probably didn't ever happen but we do know that the assassins went after some of the guys that richard the lionhearted was fighting though again probably not after saladin saladin being a mountain guy probably knew better than to let rando mountain guys into his uh, into his entourage uh, but uh, but they were certainly there to mess up the governance of any city that uh, tried to be anti-assassin or mean in general to the Ismaili Shia.
0: Right. Because it's easier to kill someone who's running something than to run something.
1: Well, much easier. And that is why, by and large, their little area of influence is only just that little mountain valley, either that little stretch between Alamut and two or three other castles in northern Iran, or just a little tiny dot in southern Syria, eastern Lebanon, uh, where the assassins were able to sort of replicate that uh system and then have the same sort of outsized effect uh locally i think they did eventually kill one or two christian uh warlords uh in the area but by and large they were less concerned with complete infidels and more concerned with you know purifying the faith uh one dead uh, seljuk at a time
0: right so if you really want to dive in into a historically accurate game about uh, hassan and Saba, that means doing your homework <laughs> on all of the different factions within uh the islamic power structure in that at that time rather than mm-hmm. having a uh europe versus uh middle east conflict
1: yeah because again one of the images that that you know misleads you is to thinking that either europe was unified <laughs> or the middle east was unified neither were true plenty of infighting amongst the crusaders plenty of infighting amongst their enemies and it is only when they are facing unified opposition in the person of saladin that the Crusaders begin to really take it on the chin, because he controls Syria and Egypt and stretches of Kurdistan, so no one can sort of get around behind him and you know uh, and, and break up his his hold. And it's really about those brief moments where either a charismatic European king takes over a crusade or a uh, gifted uh, Muslim empire builder, is able to build a unified opposition. There was plenty of locals that served the Crusaders because the taxes were lower or they were nicer. There's plenty of locals that hated the Crusaders because they were all jerk, foreigner, non-Muslims. It it becomes a big uh, tangled mess, just like, well, basically like every war <laughs> ever has been, and certainly every war between uh, two religions over the same spot of ground has been.
0: Well, when we're getting the part of a story that's a tangled mess, it's time for us to extricate ourselves and go see what else we can clarify in some other hut and or thing. The Best of Ask the is now available
1: at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six-guns role-playing game Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of
1: Astvigeln on DriveThru. Keep the yellow sign out of our Quaid diagram by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Tom Abella Bill Serwin
0: Drew Clowry Ben Brigoff and Gray St. Quentin.
1: It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Michael David Jr. asks Ken and Robin, Mutant City Blues 2nd Edition and the Yellow King RPG, gritty metahuman detectives and reality warping horror. Is Carcosa on the edge of Mutant City? Is the Quaid diagram a memetic tool to stabilize weird powers? What are some ideas to blend these two settings together? And by the way... Shout out to Michael David Jr. for learning the ask evocative questions part. A lesser Patreon backer might have just said, Mutant City Blues and Yellow King, crossovers? Question mark? Not Michael David Jr. He brings it. So, good job. Often,
0: in fact, people do write those evocative questions, and then I cut them down because they're already answering our questions for us. So, you can also assume that many of the pared down questions were, in fact, more elaborate before I got my garden shares on them. Cut them
1: ruthlessly. Well, fair enough.
0: So Michael has asked the creator of two unrelated properties to mush them together. And people love to mush things together. But if you ask the person who made them both to do it, the first answer is going to be, don't do that. They're supposed to be separate. <laughs> I, They're quite I made different. Them separate, and so let's get to the the reason not to do that first before we then go ahead and do it because we're nothing if not obliging in an all request mm-hmm. episode. So the premise behind Mutant City Blues is that superhero like mutant powers are scientifically explicable. That you know how they work. You know their uh, interconnection on the genome. Uh, there's all sorts of forensics surrounding them, and that is to answer the question, the problem of doing. Uh, an investigative uh, detective or police procedural in a superhero universe, which is in the Marvel universe or DC universe, the answer to, you know, who killed this person in this locked room can be, well, it could be anybody could be uh, one of the deviants from the uh, uh, Eternals mythology, or could have been Dr. Strange or just somebody with super science or someone from another dimension or Could have been you from another timeline. Sit down. There's a lot of possibilities. And so the whole point of Mutant City Blues is to make sure that there's one place that uh, superpowers come from and it all makes sense and you can testify about it in a court of law. So if you put the Mutant City Blues into the Yellow King universe, which is the opposite of being as sure of what's happened, a reality horror game in which reality is constantly shifting – you take the thing that makes it work and throw it in the Lake of Hali. And so the question is, how are we going to do this in a way that respects both of those things? You could just say, oh, the heck with it. There's superpowers in this universe that, and they've been caused by Carcosa and nobody knows it. But thinking think a more sophisticated version of that is to take the characters from one of your ongoing Yellow King games and I would submit the one that makes sense to do this with is that this is normal now characters and mm-hmm. which is the putatively our world that gets increasingly non-putatively and non-our world and have them all of a sudden they are the, now detectives in their world 10 years later after superpowers and they don't know what's happened. Uh, you might even, or you might not even let them know that their characters are their previous characters. And then they, slowly start to discover that, again, the Mutant City Blues uh, universe, after they played in it for a while, is another reality-shattering trick. And the uh, king in yellow, or one of the princesses, is up to no good. And is just using that to throw them off track for a while, uh, while they take over and reorient the actual uh, genuine reality. And you can start to have little clues appear that, oh no, look, there's a yellow sign. And, oh, wait a minute, here's Here's a comic book that has our adventures in it, but there this is what's happening next week, and our what's going on here, and and begin to sort of meld it back and fold it back uh into uh Yellow King so that this is a an example of making a feature of the thing that doesn't really work about trying to do
1: this. Yeah, is that you're exalting the irrationality which depends on you having played enough for the players to depend on the rationality working. And so that when you take that away from them, it becomes, oh, wow, this is creepy as opposed to, well, this game never worked. And I think that leaning into the sort of reality horror qualities of a standard superhero multiverse is another good way to do it. As you mentioned, finding a comic book with your characters in it, that sort of thing. The, I mean, there's many, many examples throughout the DC uh, universe of various Forces from outside the co- the comic continuity trying to destroy all of it, all going all the way back to the the monitor in uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earths, and you can see uh, lots of different possibilities for that if you just swap out, you know, Thanos or whoever, and they become uh, the the Yellow King, and they become you know the uh, the Lord of Carcosa, right. and D-
0: didn't. DC recently rescind an entire ill-considered relaunch as basically being a reality uh, yep, slip. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then they
1: they turned to Grant Morrison, who had been in charge of the previous relaunch, and said, "Get us out of this." <laughs> with the uh, multiversal is the comic that he did with with again a bunch of extra-dimensional in the sense of outside comic continuity of all sorts characters, and of course, being Grant Morrison, he plays with the notion that once they've entered comic continuity, they exist within comic continuity, even though they explicitly don't and so that notion of both being and unbeing of both being real and being fictional is classic Carcosa and I feel like there is the uh, the seam that joins Mutant City Blues and Yellow King and I guess you can present it as that sort of of a takeoff within the superhero universe and then you talked about having your Yellow King characters suddenly Encountering a superhuman universe. Do you think that there is a possibility that the Yellow King characters are like sort of normal people in a Marvel or DC universe, you know, in 1938, right after supers begin, or in, you know, 1961, whatever imaginary year, uh, you've decided supers began and the energy that is causing superhumans to appear? is super energy, and it's you know, heralded by this weird flu that everyone got. Well, is that-
0: again, as soon as you're beginning to make the Mutant City Blues world more like a typical grab bag, long-running comics continuity, which is deciding it's trying to be the opposite of that, mm-hmm. that entails a lot of work. You're going to have to yeah. – because there's no, you know, there's no re- equivalent of Superman – you know, there's no alien from another planet who is essentially infinitely powerful, although you can do eye lasers and be mm. invulnerable and uh, be super strong and so forth. And so, I guess, one another way to do that would be to run a Mutant City Blues game in which things are starting to get weird and then introduce possibly, I guess, even warn the players ahead of time we're going to be moving into another game and I want you to invent uh, just regular people who your uh, Mutant City Blues characters will run into. And then, and they will be like witnesses or they'll uh, be informants and sources or expert on whatever it is. And then once you get around to, you know, going through the Yellow King cycle, getting to this is normal now, then you could say, okay, remember those characters I had you invent before? Well, those are your player characters here. Now, that is also tricky because... The existing version is you take your aftermath characters and make them into this is normal now. So mm-hmm. in any direction, there's a lot of work to make things that are essentially dissimilar fit. Uh, another thing you could do, and I think I might be inclined to do is to just pull a little fakearoo and run Meet Mo- City Blues later and then have a bunch of callbacks to the Yellow King, but the reality incursion never occurs. So you, you know, you encounter a criminal mastermind called mr wild who uh you know has this weird cat and uh people start spreading the yellow sign cult but really in the mute city blues world you're expecting it to go all weird but it doesn't it just remains the joker or something yes exactly it's uh and so you're threatening your players with a return to what they've already been through but instead you're just you know throwing in little easter eggs and hints and winks and uh shoulder bumps and uh it, what is more comics-y or uh, genre-fanny than that sort of fan service?
1: And the uh, I guess the, the last sort of version of this is you present the Carcosan incursion into the This Is Normal Now normal game as a supers universe, and maybe that is the form that everyone else in the world sort of believes in and that you are the characters who are like, I don't think this is a thing that happens. I don't think there are people who fly around with lasers coming out of their eyes. I think this is a sign that the world has gone seriously off kilter. Maybe I just say this because I remember my three past lives and other realities, but I don't think that these guys are actually here for truth, justice in the American way. I think they're here to mess stuff up. And so you have sort of Yellow King meets the boys where your characters are trying to figure out how do we... Harness enough of this carcosan magic or technology or lore to drive these things back through the uh the rift in space time that they came out of and right. how do we undo this guy who flies around with his pallid mask uh shooting people with yellow lasers out of his eyes
0: exactly that the uh you know as soon as your players start to well, I wish this was more of a regular pulpy comic book version of superheroes than the those superheroes show up, and as you point out, they're awful. Yeah. And then you discover the reason they're awful is that they're from Carcosa, and you're shaking your fist. And no, my previous identities would have known what to do about this, but I don't know what's going on. So we've come with up with about three uh, different ways, I think, to approach uh, melding these uh, things that I still don't recommend that you meld. <laughs> so I think we can uh, pronounce... Our uh, job here uh, done, but I, I think since it's an all request episode and we've had three segments, I bet there's a fourth segment, and I bet it also has a question. Let's uh, let's see. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF, or in standalone paperback modules.
1: They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural.
0: By masters of top secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented
1: Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears.
0: In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war.
1: The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers
0: with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city. And awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness. Vandalism
1: of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger.
0: Hourglass. A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione.
1: Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Johannath Lie and the sea.
0: The child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease.
1: Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color, 208-page
0: hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts. The huts that sits on the border between the unexplained and the paranormal, just plain weird. We can't quite be sure what it is. Oh, but there's the alien. Uh, The two aliens, the gray alien, the Nordic alien, sitting in the corner drinking kombucha. But I don't know. We're looking out the window and somebody seems to be missing. Wait a minute. It's right behind us. It's the alien big cat, Ken. Because estimable Patreon backer Ross Ireland asked, what's the deal with the alien big cat that yowls outside the Elliptony hut? What's that in reference to? And And the answer is that it's the most quotidian thing. That can possibly go in an Elliptony hut, which is that there are often sightings of large cats being, you know, your lions, your tigers, your jaguars, your your cougars, in places where they ought not to be. And that's about it.
1: <laughs> yep. If you let the English make up your Elliptony, you're going to get something like, I thought I saw a puma. That's why you have to let the Scots come up with things like, aye, there's a plesiosaur in the loch. And now you're talking.
0: Yes. Although the Scots occasionally see out of place Pumas as well. Well, sure they do. They're, they're, they're nothing if not hospitable. They're a
1: good right. people. And if, you know, the, the, the Sassanocs across the border are all seeing Pumas, what's
0: and, not to... And some of them drink a lot of Buckfast. Yes, I was going to
1: eat... say also, if you're wandering on the hills uh, stuffed to the gills on Scotch whiskey, maybe you do see Pumas. I'm not the expert. So, but... you're,
0: you know, your marquee uh, alien big cats, your ABCs, mm-hmm. as they are called in Fortean lore... If, if you're really a superstar, you get a name. Mm. So, uh, the beast of Bodmin Moore was sighted around uh, Cornwall in 1978. Uh, there's the Fiskerton phantom who, uh, hung around Lincolnshire in 97. Uh, Although that one is, uh, so part of what makes this elliptonic is that it does get into some of the issues around actual cryptozoology, because of course, if you discover a Puma and he's just somewhere unexpected, it's not like finding Bigfoot. No, it's like
1: you just have discovered a zoo with uh, poor security, really.
0: But it does suggest certain things about the way that people cite things, the way that they are inspired to cite things by the idea that something might be there and the unreliable nature of uh, eyewitness encounters. So, for example, the Fiskerton Phantom, which, you know, sounds like a predator with a really good PR agent was just spotted by four girls and they weren't even sure if it was a bear or a cat. They were just sure that it was munching on a pheasant mm-hmm. and they got scared and they ran away. Well, it doesn't take much more mythifying to go, well, it was part bear, part cat. It was the two things. It was a weirdo. And so you the deadly bear cat. Yeah. So you can go online and see pictures of the Fiskerton phantom where it's some kind of weird, you know, Muppet creature, but probably a lot of cases there are large dogs be misidentified. Yeah,
1: I mean, in some cases also, uh one hesitates to say this about British sheep herders, but I'm sure that British insurance companies have the same we're not paying out policies as western cow insurance companies do, and so you have to come up with something that is not a normal risk to get your uh sheep insurance money, the same way that you say, "Oh no, that cow didn't die of a disease." It was killed by aliens and give me my insurance money. And if you plot cattle mutilations against various insurance uh, law regime, you find a very interesting uh, connection. Maybe that happens because there, of course there are many reports that, ah, the beast of Exmoor done killed 300 of my sheep and I was not sloppy and got them all dead of hoof and mouth disease. That was a different guy. Um, so you've got that going on. You've got the fact that there are indeed, large cats. Some of them escape from zoos. Uh, the theory is that it became illegal in the late 60s to own big cats as a private citizen in the UK. And so they let them all go rather than get arrested. And so that's why the first spate of late 60s, early 70s sightings of big cats happened. Uh, that doesn't necessarily explain all the ones this century because big cats don't live that long, but whatever. Um, there is a really good theory that someone came up with, which is that uh, because we were predated upon by lions back in the savannas in caveman times and before, that we are genetically programmed to see lions. And if we see a few extra accidental lions, that's just the system working.
0: Yeah. And running away from a bush is better than being eaten by a lion.
1: Right. And then that there are people who are just not very good at judging sizes. So one famous sighting of the St. Ozith lion. They took a picture and someone said, oh, that's just my boy Tibbles, uh, because they owned a Maine Coon. They owned a ridiculously large regular cat. And it if you've ever seen a, a Maine Coon, some of them are larger than some English people, so I get it. <laughs> there is um also, of course, the uh, mythological big cats, mostly coming out of uh, Welsh and other Celtic lore. There's the King of the Cats, in Ireland, not the one that from the cool folktale, but the one that Saint Irulin has to has to kill. There's uh, the clawing cat of Welsh lore in the Black Book of Kermarthen. And then uh, you have various folkloric lions, and of course lions were in England down into the Middle Ages. Uh, they were basically killed off by the great the, the Little Ice Age, but they were there were lions roaming around in, in England in the 13th century. So you know, we've got legendary lions that show up on the pub once more, we come back to our theory that someone has enjoyed too much at the pub, walked out, they were thinking about lions. Sure enough, they see a mysterious-looking hedge or someone's escaped Maine Coon, and there you go. You've you got a lion. Right. Uh There's also, every now and again, there is legitimately a big cat that shows up and has no reason. One of the first cases is in 1903, someone shot a Canadian lynx in Devonshire, and How a Canadian lynx got to Devonshire. He was looking for the cream. Who can say, right? He's already, you would think he could be in Canada and and have a good time, but in uh, that being in 1903, maybe that is an eccentric Devonshire lord who keeps a wild menagerie of Canadian animals. And so, you know, who can say, but there are cases where you do see legitimate weird big cats that show up for no reason. And a lot of those I assume are either, um, illegal circus animals or just some sort of, you know, situation where there was a breeding population let loose in the in the Lake District or somewhere in the 1850s by some crazy aristocrat. And yeah, there's a couple of horrible inbred specimens that show up now.
0: Right. And so the idea that that there would be a sustainable breeding population of an apex predator that nonetheless goes mostly unobserved is, I think, what cryptozoologists like about the alien big cat, because if there can be you know, a hundred year population of uh, jaguars in Devonshire, then maybe Bigfoot can still exist, or maybe these other things that you, you know, argue could exist. So that's why, partly why this is roped into Fortiana. And it's not just England, there's alien big cats in Australia. So there are pumas in Perth, allegedly, there was a Tanatula tiger, and uh, they've also invaded Scandinavia. So there've been sightings in Denmark and Sweden and in uh, the Netherlands. In the UK in 1995, the agriculture ministry uh, took this seriously enough that they said, okay, we're going to do a study. And of course, as government agencies always uh, are, they were uh, assigned to be fun ruiners. So they came back and said, nope, there's no way alien big cats can possibly exist or survive. It's not a thing. And then two years later, uh, a bunch of Farm animals get bitten. There's uh, what seem to be uh, jaguar droppings. And there's a photo of a purportedly pregnant puma or jaguar, I guess, in this case. So if we were to find out tomorrow, right, if if there was to be a jaguar, you know, actually captured in Cornwall, it would be on the news for one day. And you go, oh, jaguar captured in Cornwall. It wouldn't even be a big deal. No, It's not positing anything that particularly extraordinary, except that it, again, and, and of course, misreporting, uh, deliberately making up stories in, yes. in old timey newspapers is another part of this and making a flap out of nothing so that if one person sees a jaguar shaped bush and reports it or a thing that might be a bear and might be a cougar eating a pheasant and then you give it a name and put it in the paper well, other people are going to see it. And that, of course, echoes a lot of other sort of paranormal wave phenomenon
1: yeah i mean the thing about the big cats that makes them fun is i think exactly that quotidian nature that they are in many ways ghosts right that everyone's got ghosts there's ghosts all over the place if you saw a ghost it's a big thing for you but you know you run to the newspapers even if they proved substantially that you somehow saw a ghost they'd be like well that guy saw a ghost okay that you and a million other people have seen a ghost moving on. The big cat has that same quality, but in the sort of cryptid space, not in the supernatural space. And I think people who are more comfortable with their uncertainty being quote unquote rational. And this is obviously ridiculous are happy with big cats and it makes them feel good in a way that the plethora of ghost sightings does not, but I think that it basically is the same sort of low level weirdness that just exists in the world. And, you know, in America, we have to settle for seeing big cats that probably are big cats, but that some uh uptight scientist claims were driven out of the area in the 1850s. Like in Illinois, we've got uh, panthers that are sighted in the Shawnee forest to the south of here and everyone's like yeah there's panthers and some smart ass from the university says though there aren't any panthers they were uh, driven extinct in the 1860s blah, 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 land use and you know are there panthers it's just a way to make fun of the guy at the university it's a very right. low level yeah.
0: and, and occasionally a mountain lion shows up somewhere weird like you know yep. they're a very very rare possibly extinct in parts of canada and uh, sometimes one shows up not just yeah. extinct and again. Not a big headline story. (laughs) So the the fun thing about this is that it is quotidian, although it has, you know, it informs other elliptonic stories. So how do we make it interesting or uh, something that would actually show up in uh, a scenario? And I I think your idea that they are uh, ghosts or that, you know, the thing that was, you know, eating the pheasant is, it looks like whatever you think it is. And uh, uh, normally uh, that works for it fine. You know, if it's being cited by one person, It'll be a big dog or a cougar or or a bear, but if it's seen by a bunch of people all at once, that's why it was part bear, part cat. Is that you know different members of that group of four girls were perceiving it differently, and so mm-hmm. you know this may be some sort of regular predatory animal that's sort of slipped through a tear in the membrane or entered from fairy and is sort of a precursor, you know, the the opening act weirdness to to uh, suggest a greater weirdness or as part of a You know, a genuinely malign, monstrous uh, species that uh, is uh, tough enough for player characters to fight.
1: Yeah, I think that you can use it as if they're fighting like a local wizard or a local mad scientist or something. The alien big cat can be a thing that is, you know, sort of on the edge of his spore. That's something that is happening. And then, yeah, they they fight a panther. That's probably kind of a challenge for a a group of normal player characters. And it, it adds a little fun. And if the real problem is just this, uh, hunched over weirdo with his magic book, he's not as big a threat. So the big cat adds a, a sort of a, a physical frisson, uh, to it. Um, the other thing is that you can use big cats as, uh, sort of the way you lead into something else. You know, that there was a, a UFO landing. And so sightings of big cats kicked up because our, our panic brain that sees big cats where there aren't any is kicked up. And it's because there was that UFO landing that, that panicked us. Uh, on an infrasonic level or something. Um, you could also have, like, in 1988, apparently, the the Royal Marines went chasing the Beast of Exmoor, so you could have a survivor of that hunt who saw something for real and is sort of the inciting incident into your modern-day search, and then you can have big cats, magical, folkloric, and regularly scary pumas uh, and panthers uh, show up as sort of the motif of the campaign, even if the real big bad is... You know, Carcosa or Neolothotep or something.
0: Right. And everyone at this point is is going, why aren't they going to say it? So I'm going to say it. Another reason why the big cat might be around sometimes and then not other times and be in urban areas, of course, is the werepuma, right? This could be the lycanthropic form of uh, someone who's normally... Uh, you know, human and works at an off-license.
1: Right, yes. Uh, Elliot O'Donnell would have known to blame uh, the West Africans in London on any alien big cat sightings and said, that's what happens when you let the leopard society in and uh, one hopes that you can do uh, wear leopards without making it a race thing, but uh, wear leopards are a thing in uh, Ghana and Sierra Leone, and if they start showing up uh, maybe they're eating the descendants of vile colonial officials. And now you have a, well, on the one hand, they are an alien big cat, but on the other hand, they make an excellent point. So it can become a sort of a, in the same way that ghosts are often social anger sightings or devices. uh, Narratively, your alien big cat can also be a a social anger story that it's uh, you're mad at some insurance company or some predatory landowner or that other little girl who's a jerk and thinks it's a bear. I mean, I don't know, but the, but the alien big cat can in that way sort of resemble a poltergeist or something that is drawn out to uh, punish for a, a, a social or personal uh, sin again, moving them closer to ghost territory.
0: Right. And you could also make them uh, beneficial sort of guardian spirits who there uh, they become more numerous when the membrane thins because they're the guardians of the membrane and they yep. might identify the uh, player characters as people who are going to uh, close uh, the portal that the demons are getting through. And, if you just follow that jaguar uh, up the hill, you will find the uh, pulsing hole in reality that the actual uh, monsters are spilling out of. Right. They're
1: just there to, to hunt down and eat the Boggarts, and if you kill all the alien big cats, the Boggart population blows up.
0: Well, uh, once we've once again returned to that perennial topic of uh, Boggart population inflation, I think it's time for us to uh, escape uh, this particular episode, but we'll parachute back into another one a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsor atlas games pro Garing Game press ask for Gelm. dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob
1: borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash canon robin
0: keep alien big cats from fatally mauling this podcast by chipping in alongside such sleek backers as jay moore jeff f jeffrey cars jean-francois parody and matthew preston Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Put on your best faces with our latest design. Ready for my close-up, Mr.
0: Pickman. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.